1: Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and along with my erstwhile colleagues, Claire and Stu, I have some fantastic science for you today. Um, One of the things I think you might have noticed that I've been doing a lot lately is picking on physicists who intrude into other fields, complaining about some of the damage they do. Is that right?
0: Do you think that's um, allowed because you're a physicist? You're allowed to pick on other physicists? Oh, uh,
1: that's kind of my excuse, but let's face it, anyone can do it, and pre- basically <laughs> frequently people I'll do, do I think,
2: it. I think, honestly, in any branch of science, the people who pick most on that branch of science are other people in that branch of science. Yeah. Yeah, totally. If you look at, that's pretty much how science works, is go, your paper's
0: yeah. wrong,
1: my paper's right, your sure? paper's wrong. Yeah. That's
0: the only way we get progress. That's true. So, yeah.
1: pick on. Well, I'm not actually I'm going to do something different today. Huh? I'm going to ask the question, can these these intruding physicists, can they do any good? In fact, I'm going to look at a recent paper published about a physicist who has ideas for combating online hate groups. So I think I read about this guy the other day. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. cool some pretty cool research, but um yeah, we're going to see if if it stands up and whether there is some some good to come out of physics after all.
0: Or whether physicists just think they can solve everything. Once again, yeah,
2: maybe <laughs> if if hate groups were a perfect sphere with frictionless surface
1: and they're in a vacuum. <laughs> yes. Claire, what problems are you solving for us today?
0: Well, we have a guest this week. Excellent. It is Dr. Gabriel De Silva. He's a chemical engineer um, and senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. And he's going to be talking to us a bit about air quality, air pollution, and where Australia is in terms of our air pollution. Um, yeah, it's not all as cracked up to be. And our standards um, and, you know, where we actually sort of sit in the, in the world – Um, is a little bit behind the World Health Organization standards. So, yeah. So, the bar that we set um, isn't the same bar as the rest of the world, which is quite interesting. Anyway, I'm going to have uh, a bit of a talk to him about that.
2: Australia's air supply doesn't mean what it did in the 70s. Thanks,
1: Stu. You save me from doing a who's on first joke with the World (laughs) Health Organization. Uh, Stu, what have you got for us today? Uh,
2: Well, I was uh, doing some reading and I discovered a weirdly – uh, interesting connection between teeth and tongues. And it's not just that they're really close near each other in the mouth, but there's something much more interesting going on. Oh, my goodness. With teeth and tongues, uh, which I'm going to go into much more detail. It's got to do with fish.
1: Okay. How
2: oh about gosh. that? Oh,
0: gosh.
1: Will yeah. you have some, um, some tongue twisters for us to, to kind of. I'll Possibly, okay, Possibly.
0: I hope this is going to be about um, the tongue-eating louse
1: No, unfortunately it's not Dang. Save that for another time okay, oh, great. I hope it's going to be about the um, the aliens from Alien
0: I hope, yeah, yeah. Do
1: they eat your tongue? They had No, they had teeth on their tongues Oh, they <laughs> had a little head that
2: was yeah, their tongue Yeah, yeah, the next yeah. Yeah.
1: Mouth. yeah Did that have a tongue inside it?
2: <laughs> it just was a, a Russian <laughs> doll of alien heads Yeah
1: Something for everyone to think about Well, on with the show <laughs> Now, why do physicists intrude into other fields? Is it just because they're arrogant to think that they know everything?
0: Um, short answer, yes. Yeah. Long answer, no with a but. Yeah, Or, or, is,
2: or is, it, is it just because you can apply physics theories and concepts to other things?
1: That is one of the reasons. Um, one of the things that physicists study is, say, complex systems and this yeah. sort of stuff. And a lot of the same mathematics works on other complex systems as well. And we are surrounded by all kinds of complexity. Uh, as a good example, um, there was a paper published earlier this year with, about the hipster effect. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, this yeah, is actually- I, I saw it before. It was cool. <laughs> Okay, Mr. Plaid Shirt, over there. Now, so yeah, this is actually a mathematician who released this, Um, Jonathan Tubal from Brandeis University in the United States, and basically his work explained why anti-conformists all end up looking the same. So the basic idea behind it is pretty simple and almost obvious sounding. So if the mainstream fashion, say, is to be clean-shaven, then the hipsters will try to rebel against that by growing beards. Now, but the thing is, from a mathematical point of view, you trying to model this, the way it works depends on how long it takes for the hipsters to identify the trend. So if it's instantaneous, then as soon as the trend starts to form, people will rebel against it. you, get all kinds of random stuff happening. But if there's a delay, like a long enough delay, then the hipsters will synchronize and they'll all end up looking the same. And this was beautifully illustrated um, after the paper was published um, by there was a man who complained to MIT who read their online article. They'd used a photo to accompany it, and he complained to them that they had stolen his photo. And he was offended, not only them stealing his photo, but them calling him a hipster. Anyway, it turned out that it was a photo of a different model and who basically just looked <laughs> the same as this guy. <laughs> ...individuality at work there. So pretty yeah. much, pretty much um, the paper was proven in pretty short order by that. Anyway, this, but this thinking can be applied to something even more dangerous than hipsters. What could it possibly be? Uh, well... To use a short word, Nazis. Let's just okay. say that. Okay. Now, so today's the internet. Today is is pretty effective at spreading hate, as we've seen there a lot of mass shootings recently that have been at least internet facilitated or inspired or spread. And there was a paper published just recently in the journal Nature by a complexity theorist, Neil Johnson from George Washington University, to show how online hate, the way it works. Um, is similar to how water boils or how milk curdles. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sounds ridiculous, I know. Okay, so let's think about milk for a second. Um, Now, milk is a mixture of fats, proteins and sugars all in a liquid, right? Yeah. Water. Yeah, basically, Yeah. yeah. Now, as... When milk goes off or get, when it gets get mm. older, it gets more acidic, i.e. sour, and the change to the pH causes the protein molecules to start to attract each other. So they they start to like join together and they very rapidly form large clumps. And the milk suddenly just will go from just milk to suddenly curdled and lumpy. So it turns into curds, literally. Basically, yeah. yeah. Now um I the other thing recently I've been doing some physics experiments in the studio, I decided not to do a milk curdling student, <laughs> amount, yeah, of milk curdling or of um, online hate. Well, that's,
2: that's good. That's, that's, that's good. good. Yeah. We don't need yep. that in the studio. Yes.
1: yes, but it turns out that online hate does work similarly. Uh, there was an earlier paper published a couple of years ago where Johnson showed uh, he looked at the, the growth of ISIS and showed how it grew very rapidly uh, in a short period of time using the same process as uh, gel forms. Um, so in this, in this new study, he's, um, he, what he's done, he and his collaborators have looked at uh, hate networks across sort of worldwide on all the platforms they could and to find out how the networks work. And what they found was that similar to how you get these, these clumps of curds in milk, you get uh, the hate networks divided in about 1,000 clusters. Right. And 1,000 right. isn't that many. Um, it might sound like a lot, but you, know, you think like a, a sort of ubiquitous thing. Like about a thousand. one
0: thousand people contributing. Well, uh, well,
1: the the size of the clusters varied, but the average size was about a thousand. So you out got basically a thousand groups with a thousand people in them each. Right. So about a million people worldwide who are kind of in this network. Um, so yeah, so he looked at how they formed, but he also, as a result of this, suggested four possible policies to help combat them. Now these. Again, these are from the mathematical models. They're not necessarily uh, legally viable or politically viable. But, you know, there are some suggestions that, that could help.
0: Like ultra-high temperature treatment?
1: U.H.T. treatment. Possibly. <laughs> um, look, I did wonder about this when I first saw this because I thought, <laughs> so if he's claiming to know how to stop, like, online hate, can does he know how to stop milk curdling or water boiling just by... You know, attacking the bubbles, yep. pasteurisation, exactly. No. <laughs> okay, so one of the f- the first idea was to target the smaller groups. So, the, so essentially, if you try to attack all the bigger groups on one platform, say you want to kick a group off a platform, what happens? If they just basically rejoin. And come back in a stronger and more resilient form. So he gave an example of the the KKK was kicked off Facebook quite reasonably. Um, they went over to a Russian network called VK, and they grew grouped over there. And then they came back to Facebook, except they changed their name using characters from the Russian Cyrillic alphabet that weren't recognised by Facebook's algorithms. Right. So they were able to sneak back on, hidden from from plain um. sight. So that kind of stuff, yeah. Whereas small groups, on the other hand, they're kind of they're easy to target and they can be picked off before they grow. So that's the idea there. Um, the second policy was to ban a small randomly selected number of users. So essentially, if you try to ban all the users in a particular group, you're likely to get a backlash. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that if you were to just ban a random selection of about 10% of the users, then you essentially disrupt the networks and the thing falls apart. So it's a small-scale problem. Mm. Again, whether it's legal or not is another question. Um, another one was to deliberately form your own clusters, like anti-hate clusters, to combat the hate clusters, sort of kind of like an immune system to, to, to tackle mm. the clusters. And the fourth one was similar, but it relies on the fact that these, these different clusters, they have a lot of similarities to each other, but they're not identical. So, for instance, um, there are some neo-Nazis who want to unify Europe and some neo-Nazis who want to split up uni- Europe into different countries. Um, so if you introduce another cluster that brings those two together, they'll end up fighting amongst themselves. And, and you won't have to be, do anything. Essentially, <laughs> they won't be, they'll be too busy to, to worry about anything else. Great. So, yeah. Anyway, this is the theory. Um, whether these ideas actually work in practice is, of course, yet to be established. Um, we and, physicists like to do theories.
0: And are and the physicists going to be on, like, Facebook's payroll now? Like? like where do we go to next Uh, who knows who
1: facebook is paying i can't i can't comment on that claire (laughs) no i don't know i don't know this has just been published i don't know what the plan is here whether anyone's going to actually act on this may well Um, just
2: be a suggestion at this point
1: yeah at the very least i mean think about the level of disgust you feel for say curdled off milk and apply that uh online hate groups it's probably appropriate if we've learned anything from it that sounds (laughs) that sounds useful at least
3: I'm Maggie O'Darren-Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science.
0: Have you been to a foreign city and thought the air smelled a little different to Australia? Maybe there were fumes of diesel or woody charcoal smells of coal stoves. Or maybe you've been lucky enough to see a sunset abroad but haven't really visualised it because of the smog. With the World Health Organisation estimating over 4 million premature deaths from poor air quality worldwide, it's an issue more important than ever. But how is air quality different in Australia? Here to talk us through the facts is Dr. Gabrielle De Silva, Senior Lecturer in Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Gabrielle, welcome to Lost in Science.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: So, Gabrielle, tell us, what does bad air quality really mean?
3: Well, I guess at the simplest level, it means that there are either gases or there are particles in the air that are unhealthy for you. And bad air quality means different things in different places. So there's lots of different things that could be in the air that could hurt your health and different, you know, every city has an air quality problem just a fact of living in a you know, big urban area. Uh, but what that problem is or what the biggest problems are varies from place to place.
0: So how, how does you know, various types of air quality in, in different cities, how does it affect human health?
3: There's a whole range of mechanisms and we're still learning about different things that they can do to our bodies. But the main ones are that they impact our cardiovascular system. So they can contribute to stroke and heart disease. They can contribute to particularly lower respiratory infections, uh, which are you know, particularly da- dangerous in the elder- elderly population. And with lung cancer, a lot of cases of lung cancer can be attributed back to air pollution. And cool. there are still new things that we're learning about it.
0: Right. Can you sort of tease out that data and sort of say, OK, well, there's a certain type of air pollution that's responsible for this? or?
3: Well, we know, yeah, yeah so we know the main culprits. so... Uh, the big one is very fine particulate matter. Uh, so we tend to track PM two point five, which are particles that are smaller than two and a half micrometers. So you know, much finer than a piece of hair, for instance. So these are formed. By a number of different ways, but whatever they are, these very fine particles, you breathe them in, they go deep into your lungs, and then they start to affect your bodies negatively. Another big one is ozone. So, you know, we all, we all know about the ozone layer, and up high, high in the atmosphere, ozone's great because it filters out UV radiation. But surface-level ozone caused by pollution from cars, coal-fired power, power stations, attacks your lungs. They're two of the big pollutants that we track.
0: Right. You mentioned it around the world, but in terms of air quality and air pollution in Australia, how do we stack up?
3: It's a bit of a mixed shortcut. So I think people people associate Australia with, you know, lovely clear blue skies and uh, clean beaches. And we think that we have, um, you know, we, li- we like to think that we have a fairly good environmental quality and we do in part. So there's a lot of the biggest cities in the world have much worse air pollution problems than us. So particularly in China and India, In places like Hong Kong, Malaysia, they have really significant health problems and big economic problems caused by their low air quality. Uh, So we're not quite there, but we do have, particularly in the major cities, days that, you know, there'll be days every year where the air quality gets bad. And for people that have respiratory problems or particularly sensitive to poor air quality, they're really going to find, find that impacts upon them. And it's estimated, so from government statistics, that about 2,500 deaths per year across Australia could be contributed to air pollution. And this puts it somewhere on par with about a, the number of fatalities that we see in motor vehicle accidents. So these are both significant problems. And it's maybe, you know, if someone falls victim to one of these diseases that's exacerbated or caused by air pollution, it's you can't really tie it back to, to the cords uh, so it's not it's not quite as visible as some other you know major public health issues that we have in the country.
0: right and in terms of how we monitor the air quality, is this um, I imagine you know Australia's a really big place it would be quite difficult to get an accurate assessment
3: it is that's true uh, so the government uh, in each state pushes down to the environmental regulator the responsibility to set up monitoring stations and monitor for the biggest pollutants so they'll track particle levels they'll look at ozone and they'll also look at uh, nitrogen oxides and maybe sulfur oxides which uh, cause those which contribute to the ozone and the particle uh, pollution problem but there are two things to, to consider there so how extensive is the network of monitoring and then what are the levels at which they say okay this this particular pollutant is now too high and we need to do something about it. And there's going to be those submissions disclosed to input into the Australian state's environment ministers reconsidering the levels that we consider uh, pollutants to be harmful. So uh, we have these national air pollution...
0: So they're sort of like standards or something like that. Yes,
3: And, and we actually, compared to... So, for instance, USA, much of mainland Europe, New Zealand, uh, in Australia, we have actually quite lax standards. So, in most cases, they're worse than what the World Health Organization recommends we should have. Uh, And we're hoping that we see, you know, when the environment ministers get together later this year, that we we see these, these thresholds ratcheted up and hopefully they expand the network of monitoring. So, they go, you know, maybe not just into the big cities, but into some of the particularly on the urban fringes where you have mixed industrial residential zones. Mm. They tend to be prone to bad pollution around uh, coal-fired power stations. So the emissions control on Australia's power stations uh, on an international level is abysmal. Uh, there is, you know, where are basically where a lot of the rest of the world was at in the 70s and 80s. There's just things that we're not controlling for. This impacts you know, most acutely on those And then we also need a way of enforcing, you know, if there are infringements. So if air quality gets too bad, do we have a mechanism to take action and to go and, you know, clamp down on the biggest polluters that are are contributing to that dirty toxic air?
0: And in terms of technologies that may be, I guess, being adopted by other countries around the world to improve air quality, do you have any um, standout sort of innovations?
3: Well, there's actually... We know, we, know, we know where the pollution's coming from. So it's coming from cars, it's coming from burning fuel. and There's actually pretty simple measures to take, uh, which we just need to do it. So the technology to clean the emissions from power stations has been there for a long time. It's, it's easy to do, but it costs money. Uh, with cars, you know, there are cars that are more fuel-efficient. For instance, don't use diesel, which tends to be a dirtier fuel. There are fuel, you know, we could clean our fuel so that it is less prone to producing emissions. And so there are a number of things that we we know, you know, we know what we need to do. We just need to go and do it.
0: Now, you just wrote a news piece talking about the pollution pods in Melbourne's Treasury Gardens, which um, is part of Science Gallery's disposable exhibition. Did you get a chance to see it?
3: Yes, I did. So I went down there Saturday night.
0: And can you talk us through it?
3: So, yeah, so the pollution pods, this uh, really great piece of installation art that gives us a chance to kind of walk around the world and experience, but in the kind of safe, recreated way, what it might be to breathe in the air from London or from New Delhi or from Beijing uh, or these other cities that have very acute air quality problems and they have each their own different air quality problems. Just to uh, give us a bit of a... An idea of what does, that air might look like, what it might smell like, um, or even taste like when you so breathe in <laughs> ozone, you can kind of taste it in your in your mouth and in your lungs.
0: Well, Dr. Gabrielle de Silva, thank you so much for joining us and talking us through air quality, air pollution, and I guess, I mean, in a certain extent, how lucky we are in Australia, but also um, how we can improve things.
3: Oh, it's been my pleasure. And uh, absolutely, I think, you know, we are quite lucky here. But we also shouldn't be complacent about air pollution and air quality.
0: Thanks, Gabrielle.
2: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So one of the questions that we had at our Lost in Science trivia a couple of weeks ago was That was an excellent night, by the way. It really was. I had a lot of fun. Great fun. Uh, What part of the body doesn't regenerate in adults? In the human body. Do and you the
0: answer is, dee 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 dee, chomp, 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 teeth.
2: It is. The answer was teeth. So in humans, we get a set of teeth that once they're mature, or once we're mature, are supposed to last us through our entire adult lives. Yep. We don't
1: get any more teeth. No, like if you, yeah, pretty obvious. Like you cut off an arm, a new arm will grow back. But if you lose a tooth, you're not <laughs> going to grow a new tooth. Not, that's, not to that. That's science. Not to that degree, obviously.
2: <laughs> um, but you can't regrow any part of your teeth. Okay. Yeah. You know, you have to. You can repair them, but you can't keep them. Um, but a third of people over sixty-five have none of their own teeth left. That's wow. That's a very high proportion. It's a really wow. high proportion. Um And teeth are pretty useful. And humans, like most mammals, have teeth made of dentine, which allows to bite things and chew things and basically make them easier to digest. And is that, is that what we call enamel? Like we talk about the tooth enamel are a different. It's sort of dentine type? is the same thing. Basically, okay. it's the surface. Right. Um, do other animals have teeth? Yes, obviously. Lots of animals have teeth. Uh, some in quite scary fashion, like crocodiles and sharks. Reptiles and fish most often have teeth. How about birds? Yeah. Uh, there Wait. are fossils. Do they? There are fossils of bird-like animals with teeth, but they seem
1: to have disappeared about a hundred million years ago. Didn't they recently do an experiment where they um, switched off the genes for beaks in birds? They
2: did some weird things with bird embryos
1: some time yeah, ago. Yeah, and made them
2: grow teeth. Um, but it might be a good thing that birds don't have teeth. But there are some birds that look like they have teeth. Geese, for example. Oh, yeah. If you look at a, a goose bill, uh, and some of their relatives have tooth-like protrusions oh, inside their beaks, but these are not true teeth.
0: There's also some great Photoshopped uh, photos on the internet of birds with teeth. Oh, yeah. Just FYI, yeah, yeah, everyone.
2: And then there was Count Ducula. Yeah, did he have teeth? He, I think so. he drank tomato juice, didn't he? <laughs> um <laughs> So, in geese, that's exactly what they are. They're extensions of the beak made of a very hard form of cartilage called tomium, which is also found in turtles and tortoises, which also don't have teeth.
0: Oh, they're just, all gummy as well. Yeah, eh? they,
2: well, they have those beaks. All that, yeah. Ah. Oh, yeah, beaks. Um, but this <laughs> for
0: everyone listening at home, Stu just did the best uh, turtle uh, beak face. <laughs> yeah. Love
2: it. Um, this tomium is really hard, it works fine as a tooth replacement and it's able to tear up vegetation or even flesh if the snapping creature is so inclined. <laughs> snapping
0: um, creature. Well, they're snapping turtles. They're quite dangerous. Uh, yeah. um,
2: weirdly, geese also have this tomium cartilage all along the edges of their tongues.
0: Whoa, so what?
2: it looks yeah, it On looks like tongues? they've got teeth sticking out of their tongues and it's really scary if they chase after you with their mouth open. <laughs> Um, Which they do. They do. Let's be honest. They really do. They geese, do. Are, geese are very chasy. They're
0: very chasey. Yeah, yeah. At least they
2: sound a warning honk. <laughs> <laughs> they if just want lucky, you to go Chris. away. They don't yeah. really want to catch you. Um But teeth growing out of a tongue sounds pretty gruesome and I searched long and hard for images of teeth growing out of a tongue. I couldn't find any actual pictures. Just because I wanted to see if it had ever happened. All right, okay. Um, But the main reason I was looking for that was because of some new research from a team of scientists from King's College London and the Georgia Institute of Technology in the United States looking at fish teeth. So, uh, it seems that tongues and teeth have a lot more in common than just their location and that possibly some cells commonly found in the tongue could turn into teeth under the right conditions. No. Yes. Yes. Um, The researchers were looking at the teeth of a kind of fish called a chiclid from Lake Malawi in Africa. And these fish have a second set of teeth halfway down their throat, as they would want to do for whatever reason that they have those second set of teeth. Um, And the secondary teeth are constantly replaced throughout the fish's life. And the researchers discovered that they arise from cells that could also become taste buds.
0: Oh. Whoa. Does that mean fish taste with their teeth? Is that what no, that means? No,
2: it means that original stem cells can turn into either teeth or taste buds. Or taste buds. So <gasps> uh, when exposed to certain chemicals, the cells form into teeth. And when the chemical, called a BMA ligand, is not present, they develop into taste buds. Um, great, you might think, for the Lake Malawi cichlids, they can regrow teeth from their own taste buds. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, but... <laughs> the research found something even more interesting. The same differentiation may be possible in mammals as they found chemical markers in the tongue tissue of mice that suggest they may also be sources of cells that could be transformed in the same way. So basically, the researchers think that as taste buds are renewed frequently, they may be able to regrow teeth using a patient's own Taste bud stem cells.
0: Whoa. But you would do it re-grow.
2: in a dish.
1: You wouldn't do it in their mouth, presumably.
2: You probably wouldn't do it on their tongue, I would assume. Yeah.
0: Unless but, they wouldn't be more like a duck.
2: Yeah. Or, goose. Um, or a goose. But it may be that, you know, it may be possible to actually regrow teeth and they've never really thought about how that would be possible That's because cool. teeth are formed very early on. So it might be that one day we'll have to uh, go out looking uh, for a new trivia question.
1: And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia to support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Now, we would love you to get in touch with us. We always love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and send us a message. We are Lost In Science on 3CR. You can also find us on Twitter, you can at Science One find us and then DM us or something. I don't know. Or you can uh, you can find us on your podcast app if you are able to give us a good rating and review. That would be fantastic, as that helps us kind of lift us up in the algorithm so other people can find us. Or Or, of course, you can just listen to us on the radio when, the same time every week, Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science.
0: Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast.